Today's episode of The Fern Line is brought to you by The Hoarding Marmot, Anchorage's finest outdoor consignment shop located in the heart of Spinard. It's expedition season in Alaska, and the marmot has everything you need to fill out your kit, including a fine selection of technical climbing and mountaineering gear, insulated jackets and shells, sleeping bags, tents, maps, guidebooks, yummy trail snacks, and more, all at amazing prices to fit any budget. So make sure and stop by the Hoarding Marmot next time you roll through town or check them out online at hoardingmarmot.com. This episode of The Fern Line is also brought to you by the Alaska Rock Gym, providing quality indoor climbing to the Anchorage community since 1995. Alaska Rock Gym is a great place to keep your forearms strong and your mind centered any time of year. With over 20,000 square feet of climbing, an entire floor of bouldering terrain, beautiful locker rooms, plus expanded cardio, fitness, and yoga rooms, Alaska Rock Gym has something for everyone. So to learn more, you can stop by to take a tour of the facility or check them out online at alaskarockgym.com. All right, let's get to the show. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Evan Phillips. Welcome to another episode of The Fern Line. So today, we're doing something a little bit different. This season, we've been doing more and more trip reports, that is, sitting down with folks and talking about the amazing trips they're doing in and around the mountains. But in this episode, we're going to do a little play on that with our first ever book report. Call me old school, but nothing gets me more fired up than adding a new adventure, climbing, or mountaineering book to the collection. So I was excited last month when Valley of Giants, stories from women at the heart of Yosemite climbing, arrived at my doorstep. This anthology, edited and curated by Lauren Delaney Miller, is a collection of stories and essays written and told by the trailblazing oftentimes under the radar, women who've been at the center of Yosemite climbing over the last century. While the book of course features stories by well-known valley climbers such as Lynn Hill or Steph Davis, Delaney Miller has gone to painstaking lengths to include older, more obscure, but equally important stories as well. The result is a rich and inspiring history of female climbing and adventure in Yosemite Valley. I recently spoke with Delaney Miller to talk about her process for putting this important anthology together. And what struck me most was the amount of work and dogged determination required just to find the stories for the book. Basically a combination of internet sleuthing, scouring the white pages of physical phone books, writing and sending handwritten letters, and cold calling strangers across the country. It's an impressive feat, and it left me feeling that Delaney Miller is equal parts climber, writer, librarian, and investigative journalist. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lauren Delaney Miller talking about her new anthology, Valley of Giants, Stories from Women at the Heart of Yosemite Climbing. Yeah, so I would say that when I started climbing in college, I really got interested in it really because I saw that kind of classic National Geographic magazine cover with Alex Honnold on the cover on Half Dome. And that was the first time I ever heard of rock climbing. And 
I don't know, like just was all about Yosemite, right? Like this whole article was all about Yosemite and Alex climbing in Yosemite. And it just made it seem like climbing in Yosemite was the ultimate American climbing experience. And my idea of climbing at the time was really just that the goal would always be to just climb bigger and bigger rocks. Like I didn't have any sense that like you could climb very hard smaller rocks and that that would also be a progression in climbing. I just thought, oh, the bigger the rock, the bigger the challenge. And so I, when I started climbing, I really felt like it was hard to connect with climbers because I was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and there's a small climbing community, but not a, like, not a very big or obvious one. And so I just started reading all the books and all the magazines and everything that I could really get my hands on. And all those things kind of reinforced this idea that, first of all, if you're on the East Coast, you need to move West. And second of all, that once you move West, that Yosemite is going to be the ultimate place for you to go. And I don't know if lots of other East Coast climbers feel, feel this way. But for me at the time, this is maybe 10 years ago, it really felt like what I was seeing in literature. And I mean, and granted, most of the books about climbing at my school library were fairly outdated. Like even things at that point, like, uh, like I read Steve Roper's book, and even Lynn Hill's memoir at the time, you know, was now is actually kind of old. And so it seems like everything that I was reading made it seem like it was all about Yosemite. And I think I always wanted to go there, but I really only thought then that maybe one day I could see El Cap for myself. That's as far as I felt like I could probably go. I traveled around a lot. For a couple of years, I moved pretty much every season working on a different job, um, but didn't actually end up in California in Yosemite for a couple of more years. I felt like I needed to be a better climber before I went there. Like I didn't want to go and just get shut down on everything. I just thought everything would be too hard. And I'd never really climbed on granite before. <laughs> and I felt like I knew enough to know that if I went as the, if I just went right away, that it wouldn't really be very fun. And so I spent a lot of time in Estes Park climbing around the front range before kind of making a plan with my climbing partner at the time, Sarah Crozier, to make our first trip as climbers to Yosemite. She'd been there before once on a road trip, but we'd never been there like to climb. And so I guess it was the fall of 2016. We'd like saved up so much money so that we could take six weeks off to go out there. We spent six weeks in camp four kind of training on and off who was going to register pretending to be one person sleeping in this tent so that we could stay there longer and just doing kind of all the normal camp four shenanigans that you could do more then than you can even now, only a couple of years later with, you know, sleeping in the line to make sure you got a spot and um, sneaking around pinky and making sure that, you know, leaving only one pair of shoes outside the tent at night so that it always looked like it was just one person, you know, we'd in the morning, we'd get up early and stack our sleeping pads and bags on top of each other in case someone came by and peeked in if they had suspicions that we were in fact two people and we just try to make it look like we were just one person and um yeah and spent like six weeks there just climbing moderates nothing crazy no walls really but yeah I was hooked so I mean since then like have you worked in Yosemite yeah so I guess since then I have just completely fell in love with Yosemite and have been lucky enough to spend a ton of time there. I guess I returned the next year and kind of started doing some smaller walls for the first time. And I felt like, yes, this is it. Like the mental aspect of big wall climbing appealed to me a lot more than the purely kind of athletic nature of hard climbing. And so I just really got into it and 
had a really great fall season that year, climbing with a bunch of friends from Estes Park and learning a ton about wall climbing. Returned again in the spring and climbed El Cap for the first time and then was working remotely and was able to kind of spend most of the spring, summer, and fall there. Um, And that's when I kind of was able to finally meet a bunch of the people that worked there. I started dating a climbing ranger and became friends with a lot of people on the SAR site, was climbing with friends like Josie McKee, who had been on the search and rescue team before and kind of started to make my inroads with that team there. And then the following summer ended up working on the search and rescue team in the Valley. And then I spent three summers doing that. Um, So that would have been the summers of 2018, 19, and 20. And so, yeah, worked in the Valley for six months a year, living in Camp 4, getting to climb all the time. And yeah, it's just a totally idyllic experience to get to really be immersed in the Valley in that special way that most people don't get to because of camping restrictions and now permits and all these sorts of things. And so I feel like it was really special to get to spend extended periods of time there, like really getting to know one place that's has tons of climbing, but as a geographic area is actually pretty small. And so getting to be just in the valley for such a long time, I feel like is pretty special. Awesome. So let's talk about the inspiration for Valley of Giants, which I'm sure kind of brewed over time as you were immersing yourself into that lifestyle there. Yeah. So I think that at this point in climbing, most climbers can quickly rattle off like a small list of really badass women that we kind of keep using as our proof that women can do things. (laughs) People like Lynn Hill and Beth Rodden and Steph Davis, like there's a couple big names that come to mind really quickly for most climbers. And I feel like those are the stories that kind of get repeated. And it's, I mean, they're very worthy of that. And I just kind of felt like that was probably it. Like those are the stories that I had heard when I went to Yosemite and I felt like, okay, this is clearly a pretty male dominated thing. But there's obviously some women that are doing it because there's these couple stories that you keep hearing over and over again. But it wasn't really until I went to the valley and started spending more time there, especially when I got on the SAR site and started to see actually how like prominent women have been in the search and rescue world there as well, that I felt like, but there's tons of women here. Like I knew that there had always been some, but I didn't really realize until I started to immerse myself there in really how many there were and how many of their stories I had not heard and started to just think a lot about why that is. You know, you'd just be sitting around Camp Ford hearing stories of, oh, you know that Mary Braun solo that? And you'd say, who? <laughs> and, she, you know, like Werner Braun's wife, Mary. And you'd be like, well, I've never heard that story. And you'd hear that sort of things all the time. Or you'd hear little things like you'd hear, oh, well, you know, Lynn Hill did the first female ascent of the shield too. And you'd think, what? I thought she was really just a free climber. And people would say, oh, no, no, like she did tons of wall climbing too. And I think, oh, it's so interesting that we hear the same couple of stories over and over again, but that there's not kind of ever have been a willingness to dig a little bit deeper maybe. And I don't necessarily know where that comes from. Like I, part of me feels like just in general, women are maybe more humble and less likely to self-promote. And maybe this is pre-social media, but historically, I think men have typically been very willing to share their stories, even if they're kind of, even if they feel like an average Joe, they still feel like I have good stories I can tell. And I think that women typically don't tend to tell those stories unless they feel like they have something exceptional to say. 
And to me, that's kind of made it so that our climbing literature is pretty skewed in one direction. And so I just kind of started to feel like I can't believe there's not a collection of stories specifically from Yosemite about women climbing. And I think for me, I had this strong bias that documenting Yosemite history was really important to documenting rock climbing history, American climbing history, because it's been so influential in the development of the sport. Um, And it took a while until I really started to think, all right, well, if you were going to put a book like that together, who would who would be in it? And I kind of just started making these lists of, okay, well, here's kind of like our kind of usual cast of characters. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm here. So I know that this person, you know, I'm hearing these other stories that maybe other people aren't hearing because they're told at the crag or like they're told in camp four, they're not written down. And so I'd start adding more people to the list. And then I would start kind of asking those people, hey, if you were going to see a book like this, like who should be in it? And then I would kind of get more names. And then I would ask those people, oh, who else should be in it? And I just ended up coming up with this huge list and feeling like really validated maybe (laughs) and saying, oh yeah, like what I'm seeing is true, which is that women have been super influential in Yosemite, but it's not really being represented. And like there's, I mean, we're, I'm talking about books mostly because I feel like there's something so concrete about a book that you don't get from a magazine, but there have definitely been magazine articles, but I feel like they kind of come out and then get pushed to the side when the next edition of that magazine comes out. And like, to me, there's something that's not quite as permanent about them, even as someone who loves magazines and magazine writing. So then I would go back to old climate magazines and say, oh, there was this great story about Sue McDevitt in here. Oh, there was a cool story about this. But people have just kind of, I don't know, I feel like the stories in magazines don't get passed down generation to generation the way that books might, right? Like they're not as easy to find in libraries and things like that necessarily, unless there's a contingent of climbers and a reason for that library to have a whole backstock of climbing magazines. You know, they might stock climbing books, but they they probably don't stock decades and decades back of magazines. Yeah. One one thing that uh, I was really interested by was, you know, there's a lot of sh- like short stories and essays like back from like the, the 50s and the 60s. And how did you find that stuff? I mean, something that's really interesting is that I feel like Super Topo <laughs> was one of the most useful tools possible. And it was and like this forum had just gotten shut down when I started working on this. So it was, it couldn't be interactive, which actually was like a huge problem because I knew that there were people who were interacting on Super Topo that I wanted to talk to that didn't interact on other social media platforms. And so I had no, like it was such a goose chase to try to track some people down. But at the time, like there was, you could go still and see the old thread on Super Topo that's called the Chick History thread. And there are so many entries and I spent hours combing through that. It's not all about Yosemite, but I spent hours looking through that and just writing lists of names. And like, thank God you can still see the forum archived on Supertopo because there were so many things like this. I think I got one post in before the forum got shut down. 
in which someone basically just said, you need to read the Chick History thread. And I mean, it's huge. And that honestly was a really surprising place to get the information from like the way back when, from people that aren't on social media now. And I just got names. And then I would kind of go take those names and go to the couple people that I do know, like Ken Yeager, and say things like, do you know these people? And he would say, oh, I know like two of those people, but they know those other people, I bet. And so he'd say, okay, well, let's call Roper and see if he has a phone number for Jan Sacker. And so we'd say, oh, okay. And like just slowly tracking things down. I mean, yeah. And then I guess to bring up Ken Yeager, he was a huge help with this because at the same time he was preparing and getting ready for the Yosemite Climbing Museum in Mariposa. And so he had literally rooms full of climbing magazines that had been donated to him. And so when I couldn't find that stuff in like a library, Ken would say, ah, come into my office. And it was like a shed with hundreds of magazines in it. And he'd just say, you can go through these and like, leave me alone. And I'd just spend all this time looking through magazines to see, oh, is there a little clip? Like you get a two paragraph blurb. Oh, Sylvia Vidal solo Zodiac. And you'd think, oh, okay. (laughs) Like it was important enough at the time that it got a mention, but there's no feature or anything. So you'd think, oh, okay. And then you'd go and like kind of check that against other people. You'd say, oh, did you hear about this? And they'd be like, oh, you have to talk to her. She was such a badass. And so you'd think, okay, cool. And you'd kind of like have this list and start to prioritize it. And I guess, and then going even further back than that, I would say the other most important place to get really old materials was from the Sierra Club and the Stanford archives. And that's because in the 30s, 40s, 50s, early 60s, in Yosemite, you had to register, like you couldn't just go to REI and like get a bunch of climbing gear and go out to the valley for the weekend. Like climbing at that time was mostly done by people in clubs. And in Yosemite, two of those biggest clubs were the Sierra Club and the Sanford Alpine Club. And those organizations luckily have kept incredible records. One problem was that I signed a contract for this book in December of 2019. Um, And so three months later, when I was starting to put my plan together for things I wanted to look at in the archives, they all closed because of COVID. And so I was never able to go to those archives and dig through boxes. And so there would be this infuriating process of looking online and seeing, oh, okay, I could see the table of contents for the Stanford Alpine Club collection. And I could see that there's boxes labeled with tons of women's names, but none of it's digitized. So I don't know what's in it. So now you have to contact a researcher or one of the research librarians and say, hello, my name is Lauren and I'm a researcher. And I would really like to know what's in this box labeled B. Vogel. And And they'd say, there's lots of things in the box. And I'd say, okay, well, can you see if anything seems like it has anything to do with rock climbing or Yosemite? And they'd say, okay. And they would just go through it for me and scan anything that they thought I might be interested in looking at, which was kind of a crazy way to do that. It just felt like it'd be so much more efficient if I could go because I know what I'm looking for. But I think it worked out pretty well. I think the Stanford library might still be close to visiting researchers. And so and so relying on those research librarians was unbelievably helpful. Like I couldn't believe how helpful they were and how I was able to just describe to them, I'm looking for things written in the first person that may be about Yosemite. And if it does if it doesn't say Yosemite, it might still be about Yosemite. So can you just scan that over to me too? And they would. And I found some amazing things in there. I mean the Stanford Alpine Club has done has a huge oral history collection as well that they started putting together these recorded oral interviews with 
folks from the early days of the Alpine Club as they were getting older. And so there's like some transcribed, some not yet transcribed oral histories. And a lot of those I were able to pull from. Um, And you could see that certain names were coming up multiple times. Or you would just say this whole box (laughs) says it belongs to things about this one woman. And they would say there's tons of things in here. And you'd say, okay, well, that's a likely place to look then. But one of the troubles for me was that I had decided early on that for this anthology, I would only publish first-person accounts. And so some of those were written previously, whether it's in these archives or they were letters or they were excerpts from other books or excerpts from other magazines that have been adapted to this, or they were things that I kind of commissioned and asked someone, would you be willing to write something for this collection? But I didn't want to use anything that was not in the first person. So there was a lot of people that I would have loved to include, but either they've since passed away or they aren't really that into writing, like all sorts of things, right? Where people would just say, ah, that's just like, I don't know how to get this person's voice included in here if I'm committed to first person stories. Because if someone, you know, some people kept diaries and those things are in the archives or they wrote letters and they're in the archives. And even though they're no with us, we can get permission to somehow reprint those. And we did a couple of those, which I really love. But for other folks, I'm thinking of like Bev Johnson or Catherine Freer, right? If like you can't find the actual writing, then I didn't really know how to like include them in this collection. So I feel like while it's a great start. (laughs) It's definitely just some stories, right? Like it's not, this is not like the definitive list of everyone you need to know about. Well, that, that leads me to my next question, which is who is one of the women or one of the stories that really grabbed you and inspired you? Yeah, I would say I'm going to kind of group these two women together because they were climbing partners and they wrote separate stories, but they climbed a lot together and they kind of make appearances in each other's stories. That's Carla Fiery and Julie Brueger, both from the Pacific Northwest. The Fireys in particular were Carla's parents were huge early First Ascensionists all over the Cascades. And they're just so humble. Their stories just kind of crack me up because it took so much time. Those were both stories that I had reached out to them and asked them to write something specifically for this collection. And their stories are separate, even though they appear in each other's stories. And one of them is about, written by Carla, is about her and Julie's first all-female ascent of the Stexalathe. Right. W- which had a different name at the time, right? Or what, didn't it have an, or am I thinking of a different story? Uh, well, they called it the, the steak salad. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but more as a, as a nickname. Um, and I just, their story is so funny to me because yeah. they're so humble. <laughs> Even talking to Carla, she'd say, I just don't understand like why anyone would want to read this, basically. I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, like I'm happy to talk about that because it was fun, but it doesn't really seem like important. And that kind of, I don't know, I found that attitude so many times in so many of the women that I talked to for this collection that they were like, well, I'm happy to help. I like the idea of this book. Like, it seems important, but I mean, me, (laughs) why me? And they'd say everyone, like, this was just another day of climbing. And I don't know, I just felt like that attitude, it was just really interesting. And to me contributes to why a lot of these stories haven't been written down in the first place. And then also kind of leads you into a conversation of how has our climbing history been written down as only highlighting the first or the fastest, you know, or the first free ascent or something like that. And how do labels like that kind of keep 
women in particular out of climbing history because we're not necessarily documenting their experiences if they don't kind of meet one of these labels that we feel like are the things that are worthy of documenting. You know, this is like pre-cam and swami belts and all this stuff. And they still are like disappointed that they're down after dark. And I feel like if most people, if climbers today get down before dark, it's like a huge accomplishment on such a big route, you know? And so in some ways it just feels like, I don't know. I just love the story because I feel like if you take out the little details of the equipment that kind of pin it to a specific moment in time, you could totally just close your eyes and feel like you're talking about something that happened yesterday. Like the experience is exactly what we're all looking for. Yeah. I was actually sitting outside in the mountains in the sun a couple weeks ago reading that story and I kind of dozed off, but was like envisioning myself on the climb because it was so descriptive and it was and it was funny. And I just, I don't know, I related to it. So I thought it was a great story as well. Yeah, I was really excited to kind of bring in the experiences of Carla and Julie because they definitely had a feeling like at, at the time, the climbers that were most getting highlighted were from California. They were like part of the Stonemaster kind of crew and... Yeah, that like there was actually a pretty big divide in the valley at the time culturally from like, you know, California climbers and people who visited from elsewhere. And so I think they were especially prone to showing up, climbing, staying under the radar and then like going home. And I think that adds to like in a many, many, you know, in decades pre-social media, like a totally different atmosphere of like who climbers were paying attention to at the time and like why you might consciously <laughs> keep things under the radar uh, because you didn't want to kind of upset the um, the hierarchy of climbers in the valley at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about what does it mean to put together an anthology? So it's like, obviously, a huge component is the research. I mean, it sounds like a, you've, you've put a lot of time into researching, putting this book together. But as far as your writing, like, like, what does it take to put like an anthology together, um, like technically? Yeah, it's an interesting question because as this book has kind of come out, I've been thinking, I don't know, maybe just as a writer, I think about words a lot, but I realize I've been saying things like, I wrote a book and people are saying, Lauren wrote a book. And I'm realizing it's just not quite the right word. Like I made the book, <laughs> that's true. But, but somehow like, edited it, I feel like to most people's heads doesn't kind of encapsulate everything that it goes involved with making the book. And so as the editor, I mean, I think when we think of editing, we just think of I took the stories and proofread them or something. But as the editor of the anthology, you're kind of like the curator. If you think of like, I think of this book more like a, like a museum, <laughs> like a book version of a museum. And so when I think of the curator, I'm thinking, okay, is there a theme, right? Like some museums are, you can find a museum of modern art or a museum of history or a museum of African-American art. And so you're thinking, okay, what's a theme? And you're thinking, okay, of this museum, this theme is uh, women climbing in Yosemite. And you have to decide what does climbing mean? I had to decide climbing means fifth class climbing on a rope. Like that's an important decision to make when you're saying what is what is rock climbing? <laughs> because Yosemite and the Sierra have a huge history of scrambling. You know, the indigenous peoples of Yosemite had a huge history of scrambling. What we now consider to be scrambling, which might have been called climbing at the time, 
or called any number of things. So you have to decide what is this? What's going to like fit into this box that I'm going to make this book? And you're realizing, okay, I'm going to start at, I'm going to call it fifth class and I'm going to call it roped climbing, which is funny because then later get into like free flowing, but we're still talking about fifth class climbing. And so you're realizing, okay, as the editor, my first decision is to figure out like, what is the box (laughs) before I can figure out what to put in it. So you're like, okay, I've labeled the box, women climbing fifth class routes in Yosemite. And then you're thinking, is this just the valley? Am I going to include Tuolumne? There are definitely some Tuolumne stories and aspects of Tuolumne throughout the book, but it definitely focuses on the valley. And that was like a decision I had to make too, right? Like, should I be specifically seeking out Tuolumne stories or should I just tell people, write something about Yosemite and just let let them write whatever they want to write? And then I also had to decide where does it end? (laughs) Is this a history of 20th century Yosemite climbing? Should it come right up till the present? Like, when do I cut it off if something happens late in the editing process or something? So a lot of time originally went into just like figuring out what is this box? And then you're thinking, okay, I think I've got it pretty well labeled. I'm going to decide what to put in it. And so going back, like compiling that list, you're thinking, okay, I'm gonna, I want it to be fairly even over time. Obviously, there's more women climbing today (laughs) than there were in the 50s because there are way more people climbing today than there were climbing in the 50s. And so, but you're saying, okay, I want it to look, I want there to be an even distribution over time, which actually means that as you get later in time, decisions become harder to decide who's going to be in it and who's not going to be in it because there's way more to choose from. And so it actually made the decisions of how do I represent what we call like the modern day, the, the current generation in like less than 10 people, as opposed to the early chapters in which you're kind of scraping together seven, eight stories and they're everything you could find. And that's that chapter. And so you're making a lot of like, as the editor, right, you're making all these stylistic decisions before you're ever even looking at words. (laughs) You're deciding who is it going to be? What are the chapters? Where does it begin? And then you're thinking things like, all right, well, in Yosemite, we already kind of have the names of the eras. We think about the Golden Age. We think about the Iron Age. We think about the Stone Masters. Like we have all these other names. We think of stone monkeys, right? We kind of like already culturally have names for eras or generations, but I have to think, are those the same for women? Because if you're looking just at women's experiences, like how did those eras transition, right? Like we think of, okay, there was a shift at some point from like aid climbing to free climbing, right? In this like, um, but you're like, did that happen for women at the same time that it happened for men? Because that's who the history, that's who those labels have been made around. And so you're thinking of all these things stylistically before you ever have words <laughs> on the page. Um, but then in terms... But that's also a good thing. I mean, because in taking all that kind of time beforehand to kind of identify all of those parameters, figure those things out, I mean, that's what gives you your direction. And ultimately, it probably saves you time because you have you have parameters that you have to kind of stay within, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of this I probably did before I even, like as preparation to pitch the book to Mountaineers Books. Um, because I knew that I was a pretty unknown writer who basically was just writing climbing gear reviews at the time. And so I felt like I just had this feeling that the better my pitch was, the more likely it was to get a great publisher like Mountaineers to sign on to it. So I felt like the more I did ahead of time, the more likely they were 
they would to take me seriously. Sounds like and you so, made the right call. I think I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, then I like agreed to make an anthology without talking to that many people. Like I made my ideal table of contents, which changed a little bit from, I mean, the, the final version of the table of contents is different than the one that I had pitched him at New Year's Books, but not entirely. And I had submitted that without having actually talked to most of those people. So part of it was also just like spending a lot of time with my Yosemite community about the value of a book like this and feeling like, okay, well, I haven't actually reached out to all these people yet to see if they would do this. But I just like have a strong enough feeling that people in this community will really value this, that I bet most of them will say yes to me. And that's basically all that I had. And then we kind of, once Mountaineers Books was interested, it took a long time before we kind of nailed down into an actual contract. But once I started to feel really confident that it was all going to come together, that's when I really started reaching out to people. And I felt like there was a lot of really interesting decisions I had to make of how to do that strategically, right? Like there's people in the book that are lesser known. There's people in the book that are professional climbers that spend a lot of time getting bugged by the media and things like that. So I felt like I kind of had to be strategic because you wanted, I wanted to be able to show people, I'm serious, if this is really happening. And look, these 10 other women have already committed. But you also like, I don't know, I felt like I had to approach everyone at the right time and have an idea if they'd had other writing before or like say I knew it would be probably harder to get Lynn Hill to write something new just for this book when I couldn't pay her. But she, luckily for me, she's already written a book about climbing. And so I could go to her and still say, I'm sure you don't have time to like write a whole new chapter for me, but there's like these three great Yosemite stories from your book and maybe we could use one of those and we could just tweak it a little bit. And so I felt like I had to kind of strategically think about how I was going to approach everyone and say, or on the, off, on the flip side, say like, I know that you've probably never written or published anything like this before, but a lot of people here think that you were important and think that your stories would be valuable to share and would you be willing to do that? And my conversations with different people looked super different. I mean, there were people that just jumped on this who were like, oh, I would love to, great, 100%, sign me up. And there were definitely other people that required like months of coaxing. So I feel like... I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm just saying like, oh, but look, I've also, it's easier to go to some people when you say, um, right, so like one of the big gates that I felt like got open for me was that Ken Yeager introduced me to Liz Robbins. And basically, she told me that because, in nicer words, but basically the fact that Ken had told her that she should talk to me was probably the only reason that she did. But once we talked and she was on board and I felt like I could tell other people that the list of other contributors included Lynn and Liz Robbins and a bunch of other kind of people that I knew that they respected. I felt like, oh, maybe these people that are iffy are going to be more likely to do it because it seems legit. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I I know just from, you know, doing my, my own kind of work in the, in this realm that, I would imagine there that you had some 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 times of anxiety trying to put this together. Yeah, and I would say that a lot of it, a lot of the anxiety came from actually just trying to find people. Like I would have a name, but I'd say, well, this person doesn't exist on social media. You know, they don't have a LinkedIn. Like they don't exist on the internet because 
they're older. And so you'd think, how do I find them if I can't find them on the internet? And a lot of it came down to like, it was amazing. Like I got in touch with Irene Beardsley and she was able to say, ah, we just had a reunion of Alpine Club members and I can, I have all these people's phone numbers. So then all of a sudden I'd be like calling people's landlines or sending, I sent a couple letters to people's actual houses because she would say, oh, I correspond with them. Like, here's their mailing address. And I'd have to write a letter and say, uh, hello. (laughs) And, or like, I found some, I mean, after like a year of searching the internet, I finally just found an address in like these online white pages. I can't even remember. White pages are for people, right? (laughs) Yellow pages are for businesses. See, like, this is so foreign. And I would just say, okay, there's just an address for some people that live in a town. And I got the names of these people on an obituary that I found online. And maybe these are the people. And I would just write them a letter and say, I don't know if you're the right people that I'm looking for, but if you are, I'd love to talk to you. This is my phone number. This is my address. This is my email address. And then, you know, three weeks later, I'd get an email saying, oh, my sister got a letter from you in the mail about my mother. And I'd just be like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. And so, yeah, there were some really wild stories like that of just like months spent tracking people down. Cool. Um, I want to just talk a little bit about just the the, the creative process of writing, just because it's something that I'm I'm personally interested in like I don't think I'm a very good writer like I would I would hope to aspire to one day be a better writer but I like to talk to writers about writing and so I like first of all tell me like what what is it that you like about writing and then talk about like what's easy for you and what's hard for you when it comes to writing I think that for me my love for writing is actually just a love for talking. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that to me, writing is transcribed speech. Like I don't, like I hear at school, I feel like we talk a lot about how people are pretty clearly either people that think and then write or people who think through writing. And I'm definitely someone who thinks and then writes. Like I feel like I tend to spend a lot of time thinking and talking out loud about what I want to write. And I don't sit down to actually write until I have a very clear sense of where things are going. And then I, I like get my whole draft out, but I'm not someone that like, like I never sit down and say, Oh, I had no idea where this was going until I, until I wrote it. Like that never happens to me. I think for me, what I love is like talking to people and communicating with people. And I mostly think of writing as that transcribed onto the page so that it can be preserved (laughs) more than it is about actual writing, if that makes sense. Like, I think that I'm not someone that's really particularly good with like going with the flow. (laughs) And so I think that for me, writing, yeah, is often like a lot of the stories from this book came from people who, if they were hesitant about writing, say, because they don't identify as a writer, but I would hear them tell a great story. I would just say, let's just talk tell me the story. And I would just record it on my phone and then I would transcribe it. And then we could edit it and clean it up because we write a little bit different than we talk. But, and I feel like that's how I am too. Like when I have to write, sometimes I feel really stuck. And what I usually then do is drive somewhere and record myself on my phone saying, this is what my story is about. And I'll just talk and talk and talk, which to people that might listen to this will not be surprising at all. But like, you know, my application essay to come here to Berkeley was totally, I said the whole thing out loud 
to myself in the car over like a long drive. And then, and I'd say, oh no, I'll do it like this. And I just said the whole thing and planned the whole thing as I was driving and just speaking out loud to the notes on my app on my phone. And then I would get somewhere and I would download it and transcribe it. And then obviously I clean it up <laughs> because my written voice is than my out loud voice, but I like need that usually as my basis. Like when I have to, you know, write a pitch for class about what my story is going to be about, I find it really difficult. But if you were to say, tell me about your story, I feel like I can explain it. And so I've learned that tool for just like recording myself a lot, because I definitely am someone that thinks out loud way better than I think on paper. Mm hmm. What what's the what's the hardest thing for you about writing? Like for example, let's say like you're you're wanting to work on something but you're just like it's just not happening. Like how do you manage that? Uh, yeah, I feel like kind of going back to something we talked about way at the beginning, the writing process for me, what I like maybe the most about it is actually the learning process, like the research part of it, not necessarily putting it all down at the end. And I often just want to learn about something and then move on to the next thing. And so when I need to kind of work through multiple drafts, or I'm like really struggling with how to put the story together, I kind of have a natural inclination to just go, meh, like move on to the next thing. Being like, oh, it's just not flowing. I should just move on to the next thing. Because there's always, like, I always have a next thing. And so for me, I feel like especially now in journalism school, like the fun part is making all the notes, interviewing all the people, learning all the things. And then if I have to sit down and write and it doesn't feel like it's maybe, like I can't figure out how to put the story together, sometimes I want to go, well, do I need to write it? Like I already learned it. And then I realize, oh, the point is to now, I have to like share these things that I learned with other people. And then for me, it's that like sticking with it part that's hard sometimes. Like I very much want to learn and learn and learn, sit down, type it all out in like a huge burst of energy and then go, okay, I'm done. <laughs> this is what I learned. Um, and so like having to go through many, many rounds of edits is often really hard for me because I kind of, I often reach a point in which I'm kind of like, kind of ready to move on to the next thing. I'm thinking of this as like a knowledge transfer <laughs> and getting really bogged down with like the intricacies of like writing. Like I'm not a really creative writer. I don't do fiction. I don't even read fiction, really. Like, it's, to me, all about knowledge transfers. <laughs> so I really like clear language, and I feel like when I have to get bogged down thinking more about art and language and story, I often feel really stuck because I'm often thinking of it as, like, how do I tell you all these cool things that I learned about? And I realize that, like, I need to write well <laughs> to get, keep people interested so that they learn the things that I want them to learn. But yeah, that like, m you know, months of editing and nitpicking can get, feel really tedious for me and make it easier for me to want to go like, can't we just say it's good enough and like move on to the next story? Like there's so many interesting things going on. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me your, what are some future goals you have as a writer? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting question. Like I think that while I, when I first started working on this book, I definitely thought of it as a climbing history book. And as I kind of worked on it more and more, I realized that it definitely is that, but it also could be viewed as a women's history book. And while I'm not like a historian by trade, I definitely noticed a lot of trends in 
what women were going through at different periods of time. Like, I think it's pretty interesting to look at parallels between things that were going on in climbing, say, versus like things that were going on in our kind of larger cultural ecosystem of how, say, things like reproductive rights impacted women's growth as rock climbers. And I feel like now that I'm in journalism school and working on a bunch of total like things that don't relate to climbing at all, um, my experience working on that makes me realize, oh, maybe I, maybe a good place for me is to write more about women's experiences in general and like women's barriers to women's health and reproductive rights and how are those things related to the environment and like how are women being discounted or not focused on <laughs> by the media still, right? Because I feel like, oh, this book is about Yosemite rock climbing, but it could be about anything, right? Like this is a, this is like a story of women just having to deal with things that are happening in the world. And the medium for that in this instance <laughs> is rock climbing in Yosemite, but like it could be anything. Like there was nothing crazy happening there that made it stand out culturally, right? Like women got better at climbing after Title IX, <laughs> which gave schools funding for women and sports, right? And so you're like, these things are so connected. And so I feel like now that I'm kind of stepping back from climbing a little bit because I'm at school all the time and all I get to do is maybe go to the gym once in a while, <laughs> it's really interesting to kind of dig into, I don't know, what these kind of, what these stories look like in other parts of our lives. Um, because I just felt like I saw so many of those themes in this book, even though none of them are really discussed explicitly. I feel like you just can't not really notice that what's happening in Yosemite climbing, for instance, is just kind of following what's happening in women's development and the feminist movement and like all these different things. Even though no one has to say that explicitly, you can just see time progress and see it kind of following this timeline. And that made me really want to just dive into other places where women's stories have kind of been largely ignored. Last question, and this is just a personal one, just kind of for fun, but uh, talk about just what's, what's important to you in your life right now today. Yeah, I would say that making time to be outside has changed a lot for me since I've been in school. Like I've just never been this busy before. And I've realized that, oh, one of the things I actually like about climbing is a whole day sitting outside at the crag, eating snacks and moving a little bit, but mostly being in the sun with my friends. And so I feel like I've been trying to think about how to continue to do that and kind of boil it down to its core, which for me is like time spent outside with my friends. And I've got a husband and a dog <laughs> and yeah, got a little I just prioritize, yeah, like spending time with them. I'm getting, um, my semester is going to wrap up in a month and then I'll get to be home in Bishop for the summer, which I'm really looking forward to. I've got my little seeds starting for my garden. I'm really into gardening. And yeah, I feel like just kind of learning new things and at the same time really trying to focus on what my roots are as like a person that needs things. Like I need to make sure I prioritize time with my family and my friends and make sure I get outside every day. And those things look really different than they did a year or two ago. But I feel like, yeah, I've just been spending a lot of time thinking about what are those needs at its core? Like two years ago, I would have said climbing was a need. Now I realize it might not be, but there's something in there that is. And so I'm realizing, oh, for me, that's like 
exercising outdoors friends. And so I'm realizing, oh, I can still do those things, but it looks really different now than it did when I had abundant free time and I lived in Camp 4 and play, did those things at all points every day. Right. And- to me, it, it looks like like you've done a really good job of promoting the book on social media and stuff. How do you feel like the response has been uh, to the book? Oh, I've just been so amazed by how kind people have been. And I've just gotten such an amazing reception from people. And I think, number one, from all the women that contributed to the book. I mean, there's 39 stories and 20 or so photos. And everyone who was included, I think, feels I mean, I can't speak for every single person, but for most of the people that I've heard from, it feels pretty amazing to see something as concrete as a book. I think it really struck me when I got my copy of the book, and I'm th- and I feel like it does for other folks too, that there's something weighty about a book that we don't get with other forms of media, and something that feels so permanent about the stories being preserved this way that I think is impacting people and me included in a way that I didn't really fully anticipate, like what it would feel like to actually hold a book that has your story in it. And I know that for a lot of the women that contributed their stories or their photos, that that's been really impactful. And then, yeah, I just think that seeing that many women's stories all together for a lot of folks feels really amazing to see themselves represented both in photo and in stories because it's I don't know I feel like it just proves something that we've kind of all known all along which is that women have always been involved in climbing like women have always been instrumental to climbing and to kind of get that proof for something that you've always assumed I think has been really impactful for people all right well thanks for hanging out with me today I hope you all enjoyed this conversation with Lauren Delaney Miller And I hope you all go out and purchase a copy of her new book, Valley of Giants, Stories from Women at the Heart of Yosemite Climbing, which you can find through Mountaineers Books, probably at your local climbing shop or any good place books are sold. Hey, if you enjoy The Fern Line, if you want to support the show, make sure I can keep this thing up and running. There's a few ways you can help out. First and foremost, you can become a monthly subscriber over on Patreon. Patreon subscribers get early access to episodes, stickers and merch, music by me, and other bonus content as well. So to become a monthly subscriber over on Patreon, head on over to thefernline.com, click on the support tab, or go to patreon.com slash thefernline. And speaking of Patreon, I want to give a big shout out to Leo Franchi, who supports the show each month at the executive producer level. Thank you so much, Leo. Other ways you can support the show are to go to the website and buy some merchandise. Go to thefernline.com, click on the t-shirts tab. You can buy t-shirts. I think you can buy some coffee mugs as well now. Uh, All that goes to helping produce this show. You can also make a one-time donation over at the website as well. So if you're wanting to help out, head on over to the website, see what you can do. Don't forget to leave a review for the show over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure and tell a friend. That's it for today's episode. We will catch you next time on The Fern Line.